and welcome to A Good Walk Spoiled, a brand new history podcast series. I'm Ross Evans. And I'm Phil Perrin, and we're the guys that previously brought you nothing. This is our first podcast. Which makes it our best podcast. (laughs) From the outset, we should say that this is nothing to do with golf. Or Mark Twain. Apparently he didn't say that golf was a good walk spoiled at all. Each episode explores a different town, city or location. We choose points of interest that we think best represent the history and culture of a particular area. We walk from point to point, recording ourselves talking about what we see and chatting nonsense. It's basically a coach tour without the traffic. If you think we've missed any points of interest, get in touch with us via Twitter at GWSpod. Each episode will be uploaded to SoundCloud and is available on iTunes. You can also listen to episodes on our website, agoodwalkspoiled.co.uk. And the bonus of that is the walks are accompanied by a number of photos from the day. For the first episode of this series, we're kicking off with a walk around Western Supermare, sometimes called the Vegas of the West Country. And it's got super in the name, so it's got to be a good walk. So without further ado, let's join ourselves alighting at Western Supermare Station. Choo-choo! Hello, welcome to Western Supermare, the seaside resort in Somerset on the Bristol Channel. I've got some facts for you, Phil, about okay. Western. As we are standing just on the platform at Western Supermare Station. Just arrived. From the 1300 from Bristol Temple Meads. 1300? Yeah. 1226. Oh, sorry. Western Supermare has a population of 76,143 as of 2011. And notable people born in Western, Jill Dando, Geoffrey Archer, now Baron Archer of Western Supermare. You can't take that away from him. I mean, they tried, but... <laughs> um, John Cleese? Uh, original name, John Cheese. No, really? Yep. Cheesy Cleese. Oh, yes. Daphne Fowler? For Megheads? Bob Hope lived here as a child. I don't know if they ever got round to making the Road to Western film. <laughs> Western Supermare comes from the Saxon, Westun, Westtown, Super, Latin for on or above, and Mare, Latin for sea, so it means West Town on sea. West Town on sea. Yeah. Have you heard it in this usage? People say, I'm having a right Western. I'm, I'm in, having a Mare. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, well, not just a Mare, a Supermare. A Supermare. That sounds like a thoroughbred racing horse. <laughs> a Supermare. A, f- a filly of, of exceptional promise. It's fitting that we've arrived in Western by train today as the town's history has been linked to the railways since the first station opened in 1841, which this is not. More of that to come later. This station that we're standing at now opened in 1884, and I can tell you, Phil, it's a Department for Transport Category C2 station, which means it's an important and busy feeder. A feeder? I think I, I think I saw a Channel 5 documentary about that once. <laughs> right, we're off to our first stop today, point number one, which is the original railway station of Western Supermare. It's going to take us about four or five minutes to get there, and we're off now. Off we go. I think we should also say that we are tethered at the moment yeah. since we've forgotten the lead for our um, radio mics. Yeah. So we've had to tether ourselves together. We're actually shoulder to shoulder. It's a bit like blizzard training for people who go to either the Arctic or the Antarctic, but they put buckets over their heads and tie themselves together with ropes. And the idea is that you have, you have teamwork, uh, but you're all tethered together. So if you fall down a crevasse, Phil, I'm going in with you. Western, of course, famous for its icy crevasses. 
It's widely regarded for its glacial pace of life, but perhaps not its tundra-esque features. Talking of blizzard conditions, it is a little chilly today. There's a stiff, cold breeze. It's quite chilly. <laughs> the shipping forecast. Lundy, <laughs> southerly and southwesterly, five or six. Visibility, occasionally poor. Seaside towns always seem to have front gardens with those large palmy dragon trees. Palms, hardy palms. Sounds like a an American-owned luxury golf resort in Sharm El Sheikh. <laughs> Norwegian fishermen's hands. <laughs> the sun is threatening to break out. I think we might it get is, a bit of sun later on. I'm predicting almost a warm afternoon. Oh yes, I am. That's a brave prediction to make, seeing as uh, at this point I can't really see it getting terribly warm. It's bitter. And we have arrived at our first destination today, the North Star, the location of the original 1841 railway station. It's a small cast iron train, I imagine about the third of the size, or maybe a quarter of the size of the original train. The real North Star. It's now sitting in a flower bed and a little mini garden. It's a public island in the middle of a road network. It looks like a narrow gauge railway. The, the type you get at Longleat. <laughs> 40 kids from St. Winifred's Primary at the back, screaming. Fred Dibner up front. The Bristol and Exeter Railway arrived in Weston in 1841 and this is the site of the original station. The first trains to run this line were made up of two or three small carriages which were hauled by a team of three horses. When a strong wind was blowing towards the train, passengers sometimes got out and walked as it could be quicker. Steam locomotives were introduced in 1850 but horses continued to be used on certain trains until 1851. The effect the railway had on Western was quite profound. At the time of the first census in 1801, Western had a population of 108. By 1891, the population was almost 16,000. With the arrival of the railways, Western became a popular seaside resort. The rise of these holiday towns was linked to several factors. The shortening of the working day, the increase in wages, and most importantly, the availability of cheap and quick transport in the form of the railways. The role of the father figure also changed in the Victorian era. He was no longer just the family breadwinner, but the leading influence on the moral and cultural upbringing of the children, and family holidays were key to this. The technological improvements such as running water, reliable gas and later electric lighting also allowed hotels to offer comfortable facilities. A little poly history of Victorian Westerner. We're going to jump forward in time now, our next destination which is directly behind us. It's the Odin Cinema, point number two. Away we go. We've, we've had a quick change of plan. We're en route to the Odeon Cinema. We just popped into Western Music to buy a new lead. We, yep. just, we, we forgot one. Whoops. Jake at Western Music has just sorted us out wonderfully with some leads. Thanks, Jake. You're more than welcome. There we are, we're just exiting Western Music Shop. We're going to turn around and head towards back into the centre, but now we're no longer tethered. We're no longer tethered. I can, I'm now 10 feet away. 10 feet away, yeah. One, two, one, two, am I okay? Yeah. Right, fantastic. And off we go then, we're on, we're on again. Now let's get on with this bloody walk. <laughs> the Odeon Cinema, built in 1935. It was designed by Thomas Cecil Harrett, 
how it worked closely with the founder of Odeon Cinemas, Oscar Deutsch, to develop an easily recognisable house style, most strongly influenced by Art Deco and the Berlin cinemas of the 1920s. This cinema is noted for its organ, a 1935 Compton. It's believed to be the only cinema organ in the West Country, left working in its original location and still in regular use. Happy to hear the organ is still in regular use. As we, uh, as we look at it now, the Odeon Cinema, it's, it's a very recognisable style. It's a tiled Art Deco building mm. with rectangular Crittle-esque metal windows. Crittle? What's Crittle? Crittle is a, a British window manufacturer from Essex, I think. They're famous for their steel frame windows, often seen on similar Art Deco buildings. Around that time, 20s and 30s. Yes, it's got a canopy protecting the staircase entrance, and above that is a large tower with Odeon written on it. On top of the tower is a supported flat roof, which is very sort of iconic, I think. It, it looks like a helicopter landing pad. Yes, it does. As you said, Phil, Odeon Cinemas were founded by Oscar Deutsch, an English businessman who decided that the best way to run a highly competitive business was to open a cinema on the high street of every town with a population over 25,000. He opened the first Odeon Cinema in Birmingham in 1930. By 1937, there were 250 of them. So it worked. Odeon is now a subsidiary of Terra Firma Capital Partners, a private equity firm. <laughs> Assets, £4.7 billion. <laughs> How times have changed. Another bit of inside information on the Odeon brand for you. A popular misconception, and one that was encouraged by Odeon, uh, a bit of publicity spin, if you will, is the word Odeon stood for Oscar Deutsch Entertains Our Nation. It is actually derived from ancient Greek. In ancient Greece, Odeons were small theatres. I've read that it's ancient Greek for abusively expensive pick and mix. That's the Odeon Cinema. We're going to leave it behind us. We're going to do a 180 and walk into town westward to destination number three, Silica. The name should entice. We're going to be there in about two minutes. Let's go. We're now stuck in the middle of the uh, aforementioned island that has, has the train. We can't right. get across we, we the road. Can't, we can't get across the road. I, I fear we're going to have to run at some point. Okay, after this van. No, not no, no. Hang on. Oh God. After the red Audi. Ready? Across. We're, we're safe, listeners. We're, <laughs> we're alive. You know, I had a friend actually that worked in an Odin cinema, and someone came in and paid with a credit card that said B Argon, and he said. Can I ask you what your first name is? He said Barry. Barry Argon. Thereafter, whenever there was something that was good value, it was known as a Barry Argon. Barry Argon. So you've had an absolute Barry Argon there. That has all the hallmarks of a cocky credit card fraudster. <laughs> yeah. Bit of B Argon, that would do. No, that would be or Fre Fred Ord. Isn't that a Norwegian shipping company? <laughs> yeah, they employ Hardy Palms. <laughs> We have arrived at number three, Silica. What is it you say? Well, we're standing at what is known as Big Lamp Corner, a busy crossroads in the centre of town where a 19th century triple lamp column once stood. I can't see it. What happened to that? I don't know. It probably ended up in a reclamation yard in Reading, perhaps? Next to us on our right is Silica. Completed in 2006, Silica is an 85-foot illuminated tower comprising a modern art sculpture, an advertising sign, a retail kiosk and a bus shelter all rolled into one. Silica is 13 feet at its widest and tapers to a fine point. 
The main body of the sculpture is circled at intervals by stainless steel hoops and 280 LED lights. Two, 280? 280 LED lights. That, there's, there's definitely more than that. One, two, three, four, five. All right, I'm off to, I'm off. I'm Ross, I'm counting. Five, six, <laughs> seven, eight, nine. Appropriately, silica's main materials are sand in the form of reconstituted stone and glass. It's also highly energy efficient. The lights run on the equivalent electricity consumed by two table lamps. All 280 of them. Phil's still counting them. When he's finished, I'll let him know that bit of information. <laughs> it was constructed to symbolise Western's harmony with the sea, but it's been criticised by residents for looking like a carrot. <laughs> Silica, commissioned by the North Somerset County Council as part of the Civic Pride Initiative and cost £280,000. Oh, £280,000. Woo! I see there's a football lodged halfway up. <laughs> uh, someone call the maintenance man. Hi, John. Silica's got an obstruction in Hoop 8. Can you bring your ladder? <laughs> the, the kiosk looks like it's been closed for quite a long time. The window looks like it's been graffitied shut. Which is a shame, because I fancy the, a Kit Kat and uh, a Capri Sun. <laughs> I'm just going to stop for a second and take in the surrounds. The sun's come out. The clouds have quickly dispersed. It's blueing up. You can have a look at the pictures on the website, of course. It's very busy today. Uh, looking to our left, there's Dolphin Pets, which I think is just a name inspired by the sea. I don't think they actually sell dolphins as pets. Right, so we're going to walk past Silica now, take a stroll up the high street and onto the boulevard to our next stop. It will take us, I think, about four or five minutes to get there. We're off. Thank you. Someone's just complimented us on our mics. It's probably because of the furry gags that we have over them. They look like hair. Mine's grey, looks like Don King. Mine looks like Tina Turner, circa mid-80s. <laughs> Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. When I went to watch my local football team as a child, mm -hmm. uh, at half-time, every home game, Tina Turner, steamy windows would be played. Like clockwork. The tea lady might have been a fan. <laughs> There's a lot of dogs out today. There's a lot of dogs that look like those sort of husky crosses that, uh, now the weather's warmed up a bit, are frankly struggling with the heat. A lot of tongues out, panting. <laughs> yeah. Dog Day Afternoon. That's a, is that an Al Pacino film? I don't know. I've never seen it. I don't know. I think it's either an Al Pacino film or... Um, is that a Dustin Hoffman film? Are you just going to keep saying that until you get the right actor? No one will know any different. Dog Day Afternoon. Is that an Arnold Schwarzenegger film? We're now standing at points four and five of our walk, the Lodge of St. Q and the offices of local newspaper, the Western Mercury. They're facing each other on opposite sides of the road. These two buildings were designed by local architect Hans Price, responsible for much of the development of Western in the Victorian era. Price mixed styles such as classic, Gothic, Flemish and Moorish in his buildings and liked to use material local to the area. Grey Mendip limestone and pale yellow bar stone are common in Weston, roofed with Welsh slate shipped across the River Severn. The Lodge of St Q, built in 1881, was built as a Masonic Lodge. It is now the Constitutional Club. It incorporates many of those styles just mentioned. It has a square turret with a crenellated top, a bit like a castle on one side. And the slated roof top is set back from the front of the building a little. Set back and sloping. 
That's called a mansard roof. Oh. It's also got slitty windows. Slitty windows? They're not called slitty windows. It's slitty windows. I know the ones you mean. On the Crenellator Tower, it's got those windows that you see on castles where they fire arrows out of. But they're not called slitty windows. <laughs> Were they expecting attacks from anyone? <laughs> the local scout group. <laughs> the 39th Western Brigade. <laughs> a disgruntled faction of the WI, perhaps. Above the entrance of the Lodge of St. Q, there's a little statue of him. St. Q. Looking down, blessing all who enter. I think it's fitting that uh, he's called St. Q, because looking at the banner outside, the Constitutional Club has a snooker table. It does, yeah, like a little snooker hall. Mind you, that's Q-K-E-W. But I'm surprised that no, uh, no snooker players have come up with the nickname St. Q. Bit of a niche joke, perhaps. You know, <laughs> you've got um, Nigel Bond, 00147. <laughs> They're always fans of catastrophic weather events. The hurricane, whirlwind... Lightning. I'd fancy the nickname Deluge. Deluge? Deluge, yeah. Philip the Flood Perrin. <laughs> right, we're leaving the Lodge of St. Q behind us, and we're going to turn around and look at the Western and Somerset Mercury Office. Point number five on our walk today. It was completed in 1885. It's also by Hans Price. Worth noting is the entrance edicule. In architecture, an edicule, or tabernacle frame, is a sculptural framing device which gives importance to its contents. What that means is that there's an elaborate stone framing around the main entrance which is made up of all kinds of styles. There's lines at the bottom, it's a very embellished piece of stonework. It's uh, in the style of a triumphant arch. You are almost expecting to see little Romans marching in and out of it. <laughs> the word edicule comes from the ancient Roman word edicula, which was a small shrine usually found in the home. They often held small statues of the Penates. The Penates were the household deities. When Roman families had a meal, they would throw a piece of food into the hearth as an offering to these Penates. And that's uh, the customs of ancient Rome. Something that one suspects wasn't prevalent in ancient Rome uh, was anti-pigeon netting, which <laughs> the building is notably covered in. Within those nets, I'm sad to report, are the remains of previously trapped dead pigeons. It's almost as if they've been hung out as a warning to Le other pigeons. Left there. <laughs> yeah. Well, displayed. There we are. There's two buildings by the prolific architect Hans Price, who was responsible for much of Victorian Western. He also built the old hospital, the public library, the town hall, the old sanatorium, and much of the boulevard, which is the road that we're standing on now. Quite a few commissions. Yeah. Hmm. Hans was a popular man. Down the council. Yeah, a real gem of the council. I see the look of your face, Phil, looks like... One word comes to mind. Bung. <laughs> brown envelope. <laughs> Unmarked brown envelopes for Hans Price. We're going to leave uh, Hans Price behind us, who I'm sure was a perfectly reputable architect. Have a look in your pigeonhole. There could be something there for you from Hans. We're going to head off towards the sea, off towards the mare to the Winter Gardens, which is our next destination. It's about a five minute walk down, uh, down towards the seafront. Off we go. Strolling down the boulevard. On our right is Cafe Gold, possibly owned by Tony Hadley. Gold! Always believe in your so, he used to pull. He used to pull the microphone away from his face and back. Great technique. I guess it's good technique, I don't really know. I'm not a professional singer. Well, you could have fooled me. You know, often I see in karaoke's the long notes. The bane of the drunk karaoke trier. New York, New York. New York. 
That could go on ad infinitum. Talking of holding notes, do you know what comes to mind? Thunderball. Oh, Tom Jones. Tom Jones. When he was recording Thunderball, the yeah. theme tune of the James Bond film, mm-hmm. passed out holding the last note. He held it for as long as he could yeah. until he physically passed out. But that's the recording, isn't it? They've used that recording. That's what they say. They've obviously cut out the bit where he fell over and took out a chair and two tables and smashed a window. To get to the Winter Gardens and the seafront, we're having a walk through the grounds of the Winter Gardens. People lying down, enjoying the sun. It's a man who's lying worryingly face down there. I don't know if he's passed out or what's going on. I think the word is tired and emotional for that chap. As we're walking through the grounds, I can see the aforementioned hardy palms. Not looking so hardy, a bit worse for wear. Yeah. They look like they should be in the Canaries, doesn't it? Mm. Pining for Lanzarote. <laughs> if you interviewed that tree, do you think he'd, he'd have a Spanish accent and be just crying <laughs> for home? <laughs> Here we are, we're walking onto the Esplanade. Uh, we're facing towards the pier. On our right is the sea and the beach, and on the left are the Winter Gardens. Point number six. The Winter Gardens is a Neo-Georgian pavilion designed by Thomas Hayton Mawson, which was opened in July 1927. The building originally had extensive gardens, a tennis court, and a putting green, but much of the grounds are now covered by the Sovereign Shopping Centre. The name Winter Garden comes from a form of gardens that is maintained throughout the winter. They mainly date from the 18th and 19th centuries. They were constructed by the aristocracy as an extension to their living space and were usually attached to their main palaces. This one is used as an entertainment venue, i.e. it's not attached to a palace. It's got a a roundy facade at the front, flanked by two wings. It looks like a fat White House. Grosse Blanc Maison. (laughs) I didn't know you spoke French, Phil. Oi. The Winter Gardens and The Pier, featuring the 1992 drama film Remains of the Day, starring Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards. Well, the building. (laughs) The the film. That would have been some performance. I've got written down here that it was reported in January 2015 that the Winter Gardens had been sold to Western College for one pound. That's a big item for Poundland. A bargain. A Barry Argan. One pound property deals are basically a liability. I heard about the council in Durham selling about 150 council houses for a quid. I think Portsmouth Football Club was sold for a pound oh, as well. Oh, shut up. How <laughs> dare you? That's got nothing to do with anything. That was a legitimate fan buyout. They were putting a, they were putting a penny. We're now going to hop over the sea wall. Now, not literally, it's a 30-foot drop, but our next destination is the beach, and we'll be there just a jiffy. Down the esplanade we go. walking down the esplanade there's lots of space here there's a few skateboarders on our left practicing tricks is that an ollie uh, well i don't know their names jack maybe john yes would you like to be interviewed my sex life is fantastic well there we go uh, it's not that kind of interview. are you a resident of western no no you're on holiday i only come here for the red light district you come from the red light district mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where is the red light district you haven't found it yet? No, we haven't, no. no. You poor souls. <laughs> no, I live in Netherstone and we came for the weekend. Oh, okay. We're going to Moo's for a drink and then we're going to Dimitri's for a meal this evening. And my boss takes us out for a weekend every year and we have a lot of nice See, wonderful. Are you what was your name? Don't listen to him, Grace. Don't listen. Grace, we've got you now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Grace. 
enjoy yourself. We're on the beach. We've walked down the Esplanade, hand in hand with ice creams. <laughs> like you'd sell out for an ice cream. <laughs> I'd, actually, I'd have opted for the 30-foot drop. <laughs> it's uh, in w wide use today, the beach. There's lots of families around, people kicking a rugby ball to our right. It's a fantastic sight. The beach is flat. It's not sandy sand, is it? It's wet sand. It's providing a, a, a platform for fun. It's a very gradual decline down to the sea at Western. But as we're looking to our left, where the pier is, scores of people enjoying the weather, taking their dogs for walks. Their children for a walk. This is one of the longest naturally occurring beaches in the UK, situated on the Bristol Channel. The Bristol Channel has the second largest tidal range in the world at 15 metres. The largest is 16.3 at the Bay of Fundy, which separates New Brunswick from Nova Scotia in Canada. The second highest tidal range in the world, the Bristol Channel. In the Victorian and Edwardian eras, the beach offered many attractions, music, dance troupes, and tableau vivant. You know, you know tableau vivant? Tableau vivant? Yes, it says here that tableau vivant in uh, French. Uh, uh, yeah, French. Well, yeah, French. I speak French. So yes, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, 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 please, Phil, go ahead. No, 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 please. I don't want, uh, I don't want to steal your, your fact thunder. Uh, tableau vivant means living picture in French. Ah. You, you, you look surprised. No, no, I was just, uh, I've got sand in my eye. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tableau Vivant describes a group of suitably costumed actors posing to recreate a painting, photograph or scene. The actors remain motionless for the duration of the performance. Tableau Vivant mixes the art forms of the stage with art and photography. It was most popular before the advent of radio, film and television. In the later 19th century, virtually nude tableau, also known as pose plastique, that's another uh, French word there, Phil. <laughs> yeah, I know You've that. taken that in. I know that. Yep. Uh, provided a form of erotic entertainment. Yes, I spent many happy evening at the Folie Berger. In uh, the 1860s, there were a hundred bathing machines operating on this beach. Bathing machines looked like beach huts on wheels. They could be rolled up and down the beach depending on where the tide was, allowing people to get changed without being observed by others. When the sea wall was constructed in 1880, ramps were incorporated into the design to allow the bathing machines to be rolled on and off the beach. The ramps are still visible today. There's one just to our right, just up there. Oh yes. That's the Victorian use of the beach. We're about to move off the beach, but finally, a bit of military history. Oh, yes. During World War One, the transatlantic cable, which carried telegraph messages between America and Britain, came ashore here, right here on Whiston Beach. <laughs> it was of such importance that sentries were permanently posted here to guard it. We're going to scoot back up the beach to the pier, which is our next destination today. It's number eight. No, it's not. Yes, it is. It's number eight, the Grand Pier. And uh, we're going there now. Have a little walk along the beach. Someone's written something in the beach there. It's Gareth. Interesting he's done a baby T. All the other letters are capitals. Maybe it's Gare plus H. <laughs> Do you reckon that's H from Steps? Uh, did you know, Ross, today is the first day of the World Sandcastle Building Championships. Oh, being, is it really? Being hosted here at Weston. Uh, it's around here somewhere. I can't actually see it, but it's. Uh, I, I saw it on the news this morning. I tell you what, that's quite a good castle, isn't it? That looks like quite a competitive family building what looks like a mock-up of Leeds Castle. It's got a moat and everything. 
We've now uh, we've now walked back onto the Esplanade, and it's safe to say it's rammed, rammed with tourists, holiday makers. We're standing outside of uh, point number eight, the Grand Pier. The 400-meter-long Grand Pier was first opened in 1904. In February 2008, the pier was sold to brother and sister partnership Kerry and Michelle Michael, and underwent a multi-million-pound revamp, including a new go-kart track Ooh. and climbing wall for the pier's pavilion. However, on the 28th of July 2008, a fire started in the north tower of the pavilion in the early hours of the morning. The building was soon destroyed. The fire was thought to have been caused by several deep fat fryers, but following investigations, the origins remain a mystery. Deep fat fryers, I should say, uh, the cooking machines, not, not monks. Several intense, obese monks. <laughs> It's actually the second time the pier has been destroyed by fire. The first time was in 1930, so the pier burnt down in 1930 and in 2008. The pier was reopened in 2010, following a £39 million reconstruction. And uh, it's a pound to enter. A Barry Argin. You say that, but you're basically paying a pound to, to walk a quarter of a mile and end up surrounded by fruit machines. Oh, hang on. Uh, for an extra 50p, we can get the train up to the end of the pier. Uh, go and join <laughs> St. Winifred's Primary again. Phil's jumped on the train that, uh, that goes up and down the pier. Off I go, wait. Skip, yeah, 50p, yeah. I'll meet you at the crane claw <laughs> next to the candy floss machine. I'm looking to win a cuddly minion. Oh, I'll walk then. That was the pier. All the fun of the pier. All found. the fun of the fruit machine. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. All the fun of the fruities. Have you got any two peas? I'm I've, out. I've, I've <laughs> All my two peas are gone, but I've got long lines of these paper tickets. You can, you know, you can trade them in for your minion now. Didn't get enough. <laughs> Need another forty thousand. As we're coming to the end of our walk, here are a few bits of information about the changing face of tourism, Ross. Since the 1970s, Western has suffered a decline in popularity as a tourism destination due to cheap foreign holidays, they're cheaper and quicker than the trains, and the demise of the works holiday, traditionally associated with the manufacturing industries. Works holidays, that's what our friend Grace was on. Indeed, a survey in 2005 found that day visitors to Western stayed an average of six hours. I think we're coming, coming in slightly under that. I think we are, yeah. The largest percentage of visitors were from the West Midlands, 22%. Western attracts two groups, grey tourists over the age of 60 and families with young children. We're going to carry on now. I think it's a bit of a walk, this one. We're going to walk for half a mile down the Esplanade and the seafront to point number nine, our final destination of today's tour, the old Tropicana Lido. Look what I see on the right. Ah. That's oh, sand wow. castles. God almighty, I thought it was going to be like a couple of upturned bucket jobs, but that thing is huge. It's a bit like Gaudi's Cathedral in Barcelona. I was just going to say, you can't actually see uh, all of the sand sculptures, unfortunately, because you have to pay to get in. And we've spent all the production kitty on the pier. Yes, there's a 12-foot wooden constructed wall around the sand sculptures, so we can't get in. Do you know what I'm going to do, Phil? I'm going to get up here. What I'm doing here is uh, I've just climbed up the wall to have a look over the top of the uh, scander. <laughs> I, I can't afford the entrance fee, so there's a, it's a lovely view up here. I'll have to sum this up quickly before I get carted away. 
There's a sort of mathematical uh, woman holding a uh, conical flask in one. There's a jockey going over a jump. Quite impressive. Very intricate. Must have taken a long time to make. I hope the tide doesn't come in this far. Right, there we go. I'm coming down. Ugh. We're just passing Sea Aquarium on our right-hand side. It's an aquarium. As we get closer, I can feel the joy of the pier being sucked out of me by the miserable-looking fish logo. <laughs> downturned mouth. It's a clownfish with a downturned mouth. <laughs> finding, finding Nemo's Prozac. One wonders how the Sea Aquarium logo ever got past the graphics department. We're just passing. <laughs> Look at this. this is the a blow-up disco. There's a blow-up disco. It's a bouncy castle in the shape of a dome with loud thumping music emanating from it. It's two pounds to get in. We've started dancing now outside <laughs> the dome. Have, yeah. I hope you can hear. Can you feel the force? Wonderful bit of music. Point number nine, the Tropicana Lido. We're standing outside the Art Deco facade that fronts the old Lido complex. At the time of its construction in 1937, the Tropicana Lido was the largest open air swimming pool in Europe. It also had the highest diving board in Europe. It closed in 2000. I can't see the diving board. It's not, <laughs> it's not visible from the outside. That perimeter wall is 12 feet tops. If you can't see uh, the board over that, it's, it's not very high. Maybe it's not even there. Maybe it's in the reclamation yard, sitting next to the triple lamp column in Reading. <laughs> Diana Dawes, born Diana Mary Fluck. Western seems to attract celebrities with funny surnames. The English Marilyn Monroe-esque blonde bombshell actor came third in a Miss Modern Venus Beauty contest, which was held here in 1945. I think that's, that's my favourite statistic of this entire walk. <laughs> hey, it's fantastic. Uh, the Lido was home to Dismalland. You might have heard of that, listeners. A temporary art project funded and organised by street artist Banksy. It was open between the 21st of August and the 27th of September 2015. 36 days only. Build as a sinister take on Disneyland. It featured works by Banksy and 58 other artists, the centrepiece of which was a dilapidated Cinderella castle. I read one installation resembling a coconut shy featured a game where the objective was to knock anvils off pedestals using ping pong balls. There was also death riding a dodgem, and for one exhibit, the books of Geoffrey Archer were burned each day in a fire pit. Burning his books? Yeah, I mean, even when you're dealing with trite crime fiction. <laughs> I don't, don't know, I've never read one. The, the, um, the burning of the book. It's a big statement. There's got to be better things to do with a book than burn it if you don't like it. Yeah, yeah. When John, when John the maintenance man is finished getting the ball down from silica, <laughs> he can restock the gents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's um, that's about it from Weston. We're off to Moomoo's for a drink with Grace. Yeah, and uh, a bit of food in Dimitri's. That should round the day off nicely, I think. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Yes, see you next time on A Good Walk Spoiled. Goodbye. Well, there you have it, our first foray. We hope you liked it. Also available in a few days' time is a follow-up podcast where we discuss the things we saw and the things we didn't. It's called Off the Beaten Track. And that too will be on iTunes and the website. Thanks for listening, and hopefully you can join us for the next episode of A Good Walk Spoiled, where we'll be exploring Bristol. See you then.